you know, why self-storage? It's a recession-resistant asset class. It's done the best, you know, among the best during the last three recessions, along with medical offices and some other things. But another reason, easy to manage, maintain, and evict. So we didn't want to deal with a bunch of tenants. We didn't want to deal with toilets. And we didn't want to deal with having, you know, 90-day eviction process, something like that. So those are the, you know, simple reasons why we got into storage in the first place. That was Lauren Brightchell with Spartan Investment Group. If you're interested in self-storage, this is the conversation for you. The limited partner shares in the potentially outsized returns of a well-planned and executed investment, but as a passive investor and has the maximum leverage on their most precious asset, their time. And that is why we're here together. 90% of the millionaires out there built their net worth with real estate. However, 0% of the billionaires hands-on managing the real estate assets because there simply isn't enough time. My name is Jake Wiley, and for the past 16 years, I've been investing in real estate, and I've learned a thing or two. But the most important lesson is how to leverage the expertise and time of others to maximize your investment potential. Welcome to the Limited Partner Podcast. All right. Welcome, partners. Again, this is your host, Jake Wiley. I think this is going to be a great show. I'm joined by Lauren Breichel, who's the Investor Relations Leader over at Spartan Investment Group. So those of you that have listened to the show a lot, you know that we've probably had a lot of folks on from multifamily. So we're going to be talking about self-storage today. So I'm kind of excited to talk about a different asset class, but Lauren, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Jake. Excited to be here. This will be fun. But Lauren, for the listeners out there, if you wouldn't mind, give us a little bit of background on, on you as a person then obviously is Spartan. Sure thing. Yep. So me personally... I have a marketing background. I started at Spartan about three years ago doing their corporate and property marketing. And Spartan itself is you know, a self-storage investment firm. We offer limited investors the opportunity to invest passively in self-storage offerings at a lower minimum than going out and buying it yourself, you know, your own property. So it's a really great model. We're vertically integrated. We have property management and construction companies in-house. So we do it all and we've been around since 2013. So when I started back at Spartan, like I said, started in the marketing space, had no idea what investor relations was, what capital raising was, any of that. So ever since then, my boss said, you know, you might be a great fit for investor relations. Let's get you teed up to do that. And uh, the rest is history. So that's a little bit about me. Well, let's dive into a little bit about self-storage, right? So obviously the Spartan founders it picked a niche and they found self-storage. Why self-storage? What's the value add there? And then really what kind of separates Spartan from all the other players in the market? Sure. So, you know, why self-storage? It's a recession-resistant asset class. It's done the best, you know, among the best during the last three recessions, along with medical offices and some other things. But another reason, easy to manage, maintain, and evict. So we didn't want to deal with a bunch of tenants. We didn't want to deal with toilets. And we didn't want to deal with having, you know, 90-day eviction process, something like that. So those are the, you know, simple reasons why we got into storage in the first place. And why Spartan is different, like I mentioned earlier, we are vertically integrated. We have 100 employees in our firm that manage every aspect of the project. So we have total control over everything we do. And another thing that sets us apart is our due diligence. So we have an over 700 checkpoint due diligence tracker that we go through every single time we buy a property. So we're as thorough as we possibly can be and like to mitigate risk as much as we can. So in terms of self-storage, I like that there's no tenants there's no toilets. There's probably some trash still. Just trying to think through like return profiles or like what's really attractive for a limited partner about self-storage versus, you know, say multifamily, which we have a lot of conversations on the show about. Sure. You know, return-wise, self-storage is great. 
has great cash flow. So, you know, every month tenants are paying, you know, hopefully on time. The cash flow is great. The overhead is lower than multifamily and the appreciation is just as good on storage units as it is multifamily. So you get the cash flow play plus the upside on the back end for the equity when we sell. Great point. And then thinking about the current market, we're going through an interesting market dynamic. You know, the last decade has been great, but you know, with rates rising, you know, what are you guys seeing or what are you looking out for? What's got your radar up in the self-storage space? Sure. Yep. Obviously, with rates rising, that does affect the numbers. So we're just being extra conservative with our underwriting, making sure that we're not just buying anything. You know, last year in 2021, you could buy a lot of things and make the numbers work. Not everything still, but we're being a lot more picky this year. We have the opportunity to do that, which is great. So even with the higher interest rates, we're still able to go out and buy some great facilities. We're now seeing facilities being purchased at under market rate, which is new coming out of 2021, which is also exciting for us. And we really haven't seen cap rates change yet in the storage space. So they're staying pretty steady, even you know with the interest rates and inflation. So we're excited to buy some new assets this year and then kind of see where it goes. We don't expect interest rates really to keep rising for the next, you know, over two years or anything like that. So go into it knowing that we can still make the numbers work in this environment is just going to create even greater upside for our investors in the back end, we hope. So just trying to draw parallels because we, like I said, we talk about multifamily a lot. There's a value add strategy, which is typically what our syndicators and sponsors are looking at. How does that look on the self-storage side? How are you guys really creating value? Sure. Yep. So like you said, we do focus on value add for most of our portfolio. We'll go in, we'll rebrand the properties to our national brand, free up storage. We'll add ancillary streams of revenue. We'll bring, you know, all of the cosmetic updates to the properties that need to be, you know, take it from a class C property to a class B plus or A property. And then the biggest way that we add value is if there's an extra parcel or parking lot on the property and there's still demand in the market, we'll add brand new class A units to that facility. I saw, for those of you out there, I've seen Spartan present before. And, you know, like, it's funny, they show these maps of these storage units and there's this fence that goes around this giant lot and there's like storage units. Why aren't other people doing this? Like, why isn't, you know, it seems so obvious when you kind of look at it from the top. Well, you know, the other people, maybe you're talking mom and pop owners that we take these facilities over from. The facilities, when we take them over, they usually have been owned by these mom and pops for, you know, 30, 40 years, something like that. And they're happy with the cash flow. You know, the rates are usually under market rent. That's another way that we add value is we bring them up to street rate. And so, like I said, these mom and pops, they don't want to do a lot with it. They're happy with the cash flow. It funds their lifestyle. They don't need to add additional units. They don't have maybe the capital to do so. So it makes it very easy for us to come in. And, you know, a lot of times they will come with a couple acres of land extra that it just comes with the one little facility sitting there on the property. And since we have a construction team in-house, it makes it really easy to go in and expand. So another question I've actually got is in terms of leases, right? So you think about apartments, like you want to do a turnover and you've got leases. So like maybe the day you buy it, somebody had just signed a lease. So you got to wait a year for their unit. How does that work in self-storage? Is there a quicker turn? Is there ability to really kind of get in there and do all the renovations that you want at once or like, you know, kind of like apartments where you have to kind of do it piece by piece. It seems like it'd be really a challenge. 
Sure. Yeah. That's another thing we love about self-storage is that we have dynamic pricing. We can raise the rents every 30 days if we want. Nobody's on a six-month, a 12-month lease, anything like that. I think our average tenant stay time is about you know somewhere around 48 months. But like I said, they're not on a set lease, so we can up the pricing at any time. The actual units themselves don't really get renovated on the inside. You know, it's concrete floor, metal walls, nothing really changes there, but we might, you know, renovate the office or add new units on the other side of the facility. And it usually does not disrupt the customers at all. Okay. Yeah, that's a great point. So the ability to turn or execute the business plan in self-storage could be significantly faster, right? Because you're not waiting on units to turn you know, from an annual lease. And then two, you don't really have to do a whole lot to the unit themselves. So there's not like downtime. So that's really interesting. And earlier you mentioned that it's recession proof. Like it would seem to me in the times where like there is a recession or, you know, cash flow is pinched, storage would almost be seen as a luxury. But I know that there's kind of another train of thought and why it's recession proof. But can you explain that? Absolutely. So it's really as simple as, you know, Americans love their stuff. They're attached to it. So it's recession proof, it resistant even because in economic upturns and downturns, people need it. it. In the downturns, people are downsizing their homes, closing their businesses, unfortunately. Life events like that, where they might have had a 4,000 square foot house, but now they're moving into apartment in the short term because they got laid off. Well, they're just not going to get rid of all their stuff and sell it because they're hopeful that in the future, they'll be able to move back into that nice house. So they'll stick it in storage in the meantime. A couple hundred dollars a month is a lot cheaper than their expensive mortgage, things like that. Same with businesses. If they close, unfortunately, they're still hopeful that maybe someday they'll come back. So on the flip side, on the economic upturns, people are you know, creating new businesses. We have 30% of our customers are small businesses. So things like that. And so, yeah, they could be renovating their home. They could be putting their stuff in storage in the meantime and moving across country. So lots of different options. Yeah. And I've heard that, you know, self-storage is like a transitory kind of product, right? So you've got people that are moving up, right? So they're renovating. So in good times, like they need a place to put their stuff while they're kind of moving up. And then like in downturns, it's it's a place to put their stuff. And, you know, like you said, in hopes that things will bounce back and they'll be able to do it. So it really is interesting that, that history has proven out that self-storage is recession-proof. And, you know, you have the ability to kind of deal dynamically with pricing very quickly, which you don't really have. You don't have the long-term you know, headaches of filing evictions. I mean, I know we've all seen, well, no, I don't know if we've all seen, but I've, I used to watch storage wars, right? So you know what happens to people's stuff where they don't pay. You know, I think one thing I'd like to ask you is that your investor relations, that you're probably frontline in terms of dealing with the limited partners and the investors and these assets. What are some of the biggest mistakes people have made jumping in as an LP that you've seen? Sure. Yeah. Biggest mistake you can make is jumping in as an LP is not properly vetting your sponsor. And on the flip side, focusing more on the numbers than in the trust of the sponsor to be able to get the job done. So at the end of the day, it's real estate. We can do all the risk mitigation we possibly can on the front end, but things come up and things happen that you just don't expect sometimes. So being able to trust your sponsor and just have all your faith in them that during the ups and downs, they're still going to get the job done at the end of the day is really important. And by you know trusting them, doing a really thorough vetting of said sponsors, do the background checks, look at their track record, go visit some of the properties that they own, 
go meet with them in person and see how you like them, you know, just as general people, because, you know, during a bad time, you just still want to have your faith in them that they'll bring the project back around. We bring up a really good point. We hit on this really hard on the show is that you really only have one chance to do your due diligence and it's not why the project's live, right? Like once the money's in, involved, like it's plugged up for a while. And, you know, to your point too, is that like you have a pro forma and it's a plan and the plan is generally pretty smooth. Like you don't really plan for like lumpiness, but lumpiness is part of cycles. So there'll be times where things are maybe not going necessarily according to plan and there'll be times when it's going better than plan. And I think your point that you're bringing up and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but you got to kind of trust the sponsor in their history that like, yes, like I couldn't have told you that March was going to be a bad month, but then I couldn't have told you that April was going to be a great month and we're right on plan. But like, if you freak out in March, you're like going gangbusters in April, you can't ride the cycle that way. Is that fair? Absolutely. That's totally fair. And, you know, just remember too, that, you know, if there is a freak out in March or something's not going to plan, or you missed a month of distributions, usually it's a longer period hold. It's a five-year hold. You know, what happens in month 12 isn't going to be a contender in a tell of what's going to happen during the entire project and the overall return. So trusting in your sponsor to know that these things happen and they should be ready and prepared for it to bring it back around is very important. So, you know, in working with limited partners, investors, you probably feel a lot of the same questions, but the other thing that you brought up that I thought was really important is getting out and meeting your sponsors and doing background checks. How many people are actually doing background checks on the sponsors that you deal with? Yeah, great question. So it's not as frequent as you would think. We've maybe only had five or so people do background checks on our general partners here at Spartan. But, you know, if the general partners aren't open to you doing that, when they ask, that should be a huge red flag. Yeah, I agree. And I think the reason I want to bring that up is that it seems intrusive. You know, I think we all want to be nice, especially like I'm from the South, right? Like you don't want to offend anybody. You know, you get up to New York, they'll be like, I'll do a background check, a criminal check. Like we'll do it all. But like you come from some of these other markets where like there's almost a cultural issue about like offending somebody, asking pertinent questions, poking a little bit harder on, you know, assumptions in the deal. And I think that, you know, what I'm like to get from you is, how open are you, is Spartan, to people really poking and probing? Like if somebody comes and says, I'm looking to do an investment, but I want to ask a bunch of questions where I need to do a background check, like you got, you guys are open to that, right? Yes, we're super open to it. You know, there's so many sponsors out there these days and anyone can go out and raise capital and have a great marketing platform and look really professional on the outside, but you can be faked. And that's how these things happen. That's how deals go bad when you get burned. It's not about being nice or prodding too much. You should prod and you should feel comfortable with exactly who your sponsors are and they should be okay with you asking because at the end of the day, this is your hard-earned money going into their deals. And so you need to be okay with exactly what they have to offer and who they are as people. So yeah, we are willing to go super deep with our investors on whatever they would like to see. We'll show them the property financials within 24 hours if they ask during the lifetime of a project. You know, hey, what's going on? I want to see the books. Okay, no problem. We share the underwriting files. We share everything we possibly can to make the investor feel good about it. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And what I want to hammer home for you guys that are listening is that it is super important that you take your time up front to ask the questions that you need to ask. And it's also anticipated and probably welcome to a certain degree by sponsors to say like, yeah, okay, you're doing your diligence on us. Like, You've been through all these questions. You've asked all these things because you may think that you're doing, you know, you're annoying or you're asking too many questions, but like sponsors also know that like, if you don't ask a lot of questions up front, like you might start getting questions like midstream 
And there's really nothing you can do at that point. And it's, oh man, I really wish you'd, you'd asked all these questions ahead of time, you know, before you start freaking out about things. Yes, absolutely. We'd rather you feel 100% comfortable going into the deal than to your point six months in wondering, oh, what about this? And what does the preferred return mean? And something like that. Yeah. So maybe another question for you then. For limited partners, what's the top thing you wish they knew before they jumped in with you guys? Yeah, great question. So I think there's a lot of great education out there around these kinds of investments, but I think there could be more. And, you know, there's a lot of differing information as well. So I wish it was a little bit more streamlined, but I wish that, you know, folks would understand what a preferred return really does mean. If it's a 7% preferred return, it doesn't mean you're going to get 7% every single month for the entirety of the project. It means that usually it's accumulated and you might get three or 4% and then we need to catch it up once it's project stabilized, things like that. But a lot of people just don't, they just kind of brush over it and think, oh, 7% per annum. And then they just don't go deep enough in with the researcher, or maybe it's our fault. We don't explain it well enough, but that, that would be a big one. I love your answer, right? Because that is the whole purpose of the limited partner community. And I'm actually going to stop and give a, a little bit of a plug because I, we just kind of went through some of this the other day because I am getting feedback from the show and people are saying like, hey, like, you know, I was following you, I was following you, I was following you. And then we started throwing out like cap rates and prefs and all these different things. Like, what does that mean? And then like, you kind of get lost in the conversation and you feel it. So I've actually created a list. I took all the feedback and there's like 26 things that I think were the kind of the top identified, like... These are the ones that you're going to stumble on. And I've created a list and I've actually put it on the website. So it's the limitedpartner.com forward slash lingo, right? Because it is the lingo of what we're dealing with here. So if you want to go there and, and like Lauren was mentioning, like there's something that you're stumbling on, like that's a great place. I've already tried to put some of that out there and it's an ongoing thing. So if you guys have more questions, please shoot me an email. If, there's all the information's on the site. But I think that, Lauren, your point's dead on, is that there's nuances, there's little words, and it's not hard. It was kind of mind-blowing through this exercise when people are starting to ask, is that there's like 26 terms that are very kind of like commercial, real estate-related, specific. That like once you know that, all of a sudden, like there would be just like this mental clarity of like, oh, that's what you're talking about. <laughs> like, it's not magic. It's not mumbo-jumbo. Like you just kind of understand what people are saying and then it will be a lot clearer. We've put that together and that is kind of the whole purpose of the community. It's just a place for education. So thank you for sharing that. And if you have other questions or if you go look at the list and you think, hey, there's a couple more that <laughs> we constantly get asked on, let me know and I'll update it. It's a great tool. Well, Lauren, I guess, how are you guys looking at the market differently now? You or starting to maybe get some questions from investors, or you guys are like trying to plan proactively on how to deal with what's coming, what's different for you guys? What should we be thinking about there? Sure. Right now, our principles and our strategic plan and all that are just staying the same. We're staying grounded in our core business. And the only thing that's really changing is we've always been conservative in our underwriting and our property selection but we're just being extra conservative with the numbers, especially with these rising interest rates. We don't know exactly how much they're going to rise or how long it's going to last. So that's really been the biggest change. And like I said, we're buying the exact same properties we always have been in the same high growth markets. So not a ton has changed. We don't really like to play off of the trends in the market and things like that. We just kind of like to stick to our core values and our core business plan and operate from there. That's a great point. Right before the show, you know, you guys out there didn't get a chance to hear Lauren and I talking about this, but there are a lot of syndicators out there that are following the trends or flipping their markets, right? Hey, we used to do like 
office and office is tough. So now we're all of a sudden self-storage experts. Or So it's always good to to find a group that is kind of working specifically and they know what their niche is and they're not, you know, trying to over diversify or become like, you know, just follow like what's the next best thing or follow the rates, right? Because obviously the cap rates and different asset classes are going to be different, right? So the potential return and cash flow might be better. But it's also a lot riskier if that's not your core focus. I guess the other thing we were talking about before the show, I'd love for you to share a little bit more about is you guys are in a kind of a unique space within the market, right? Like you're not buying like little tiny mom and pops, right? So you're not competing at the bottom, you know, and like you're kind of really more at the top, which gives you kind of a different, I guess, angle or approach or like opportunity for returns because the competition for the deals is smaller and you're really getting to a specialized niche. I'd love for you to talk about that. Absolutely. Yes. So, you know, while we do buy some single mom and pop properties, 40,000 square feet or bigger, we do focus on the bigger portfolios. And we are one of the top, I think, 50 at this point operators in the U.S. So really our competitive market is smaller than it used to be, which is great. We still have some big REITs and institutional buyers who are sort of competing with us. But the thing that sets us apart and why we're still able to win these deals, and it hasn't changed really over the last couple of years, other than being less competition potentially this year with just because of funding and interest rates and things like that, is we have a 100% contract to close ratio. So the brokers love that. When we go into a deal and we put under contract, they know we're going to try our absolute hardest to close it. We're not just going to throw out contracts willy-nilly and you know close on them 30% of the time or something like that. So that wins us a lot of deals. We really have deep broker relationships. We get a lot of our deals off markets occasionally. And that, that kind of sets us apart and we've won deals way under the top bidder just because of our reputation. I really think there's a point there that you brought up that's super important in that when you think about working with an operator, like one of the questions that you could ask in your diligence is like, what is your contract to close ratio? Because there are some spray and pray operators out there that are just like, we're going to throw contracts out on everything. And then like, we'll see what gets accepted. And then like, we'll then start our diligence and think about how we're going to approach it. Now, like, I'm not saying that like, it should be a hundred, you know, maybe it shouldn't be a hundred. Maybe you should have some, they're like, yeah, we did diligence. And it's like, no way. (laughs) But if you have an operator that's getting deals done, like the market signal, right, is not necessarily for you as an investor, like that's super great. But what it does do is for the brokers and the sellers, they have confidence that this deal is going to get closed. And therefore, like to your point, you are very competitive and it's not always about price. It's about getting the deal done, right? The broker wants to get the deal done. The seller wants to get the deal done. And you guys have that competitive advantage and you're playing at a level where you're not playing with all the emotional people, you know, down at the bottom, setting the stage. It's like, if you've been house hunting in the past year and a half, you know what I mean? Like you're competing against everybody and their brother that one could potentially afford it and two is looking for something. When you kind of step up in the game and like you guys are at a different level, you guys have a much smaller market that you're competing against and then you're closing. Right. And so you're extremely competitive. So Lauren, I think that was a great point. I just wanted to highlight that. This has been an incredible conversation. I always like to end my shows with a bit of gratitude. You know, we've all gotten somewhere because somebody's given us a leg up that maybe we didn't deserve. So I'd love to give you an opportunity to maybe give somebody a shout out publicly that has helped you along the way that 
you'd like to share. Absolutely. I would like to specifically shout out to Ryan Gibson, our chief investment officer here at Spartan Investment Group. Without him, I wouldn't even know what investor relations is. So he took me under his wing when I started at the firm three years ago on the marketing side and really spun me up to know everything I need to, to be able to move into this role. So really always going to be grateful for Ryan. Well, Ryan, I hope you hear this show and listen to it. And then I want to thank you too, because it really is the mark of a great manager when you see something in somebody that they don't even see in themselves, and then you give them a chance. So, you know, Lauren, you're a testament that one, he had the right vision and he gave you that chance. So Ryan, thank you. Well, Lauren, thank you for being on the show. This has been a great conversation. I love talking about new asset classes and self-storage is such a great one. And Spartan has got an incredible track record. So I really appreciate you being here. Yes. Thank you so much, Jake, for having me on. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode, and I'd actually love for you to contribute to a future episode. If you have a question you'd like answered or a topic or a guest to bring on the show, please email me at jake at thelimitedpartner.com. Now I realize there's a lot of lingo that's thrown around on these shows, so I've created a cheat sheet for you with the top 26 terms that come up most often. Head on over to thelimitedpartner.com forward slash lingo for the list. Enjoy, and we'll see you next time.